You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Mananan, Jawbreaker, Kruger, Loining, MD, Charles, Logan, Pablo, Tobes, Workman, Legends, Kenway, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Deck, Eric the Red, Redbeard, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstrap Spaley. Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. Returning to the familiar and comfortable aspects of your past can often serve as a reprieve from the stresses of real life. Like coming home for the summer after your first year of college, all the old comforts are still there. It's just good for the soul. It gives you time to pause and reflect and, most importantly, to relax. However, as we can all attest these days, while spending time in quiet isolation can be a respite, it gets old surprisingly quickly. I don't know about you, but I gave up my definitely-gonna-stick-with-it-this-time meditation and yoga routine in about two days. Imagine that you live a life in which you've grown used to the blood and smoke of combat and action, to the tranquility of the open sea and the dangers of the open sea. How would you fare giving that up for farming? How do you suppose a pirate fares building a windmill? Thomas Paine did just that in 1680. He returned to Massachusetts Bay and built the oldest surviving windmill in Massachusetts. This would have been a perfect time for him to settle down, to buy a house, and to retire from a life of roving and maybe it was intended to be, but it wouldn't last. In only a very few short months, Thomas Paine was back in the West Indies and back on the account. This is episode 163, A Race of Evildoers. I suggested last time that it was possible that the pirates George Wright and Jan Willems accompanied Thomas Paine to New England in 1680. And I stick by that. All throughout this story, those three captains and their crews proved to be something of a clique within the world of the Brethren of the Coast. Beyond that, they disappear from the historic record at the same time that Captain Payne went to Cape Cod. 
and all three reappear in the West Indies at the same time as Thomas Paine. But that reappearance might just be a coincidence. They could have been spending their war winnings on a weeks-long binge in Tortuga, a bacchanal of rum and wine and beer, surrounded by a haze of opium and marijuana and tobacco smoke, only interrupted, of course, by marathon bouts of sex and gambling until all of their money and all of their energy was spent. That's what everyone describes whenever a pirate crew gets paid, from the very earliest buccaneers on down through the end of the 1800s. Those orgies of sinful opulence were the back on which the economies of places like Port Royal and Tortuga and later Nassau were built. That and the provision and sale of illegally obtained goods. And we can assume that many of the crewmen of Jan Willems and George Wright and Thomas Paine were engaging in all of that and more. But as for their captains, well, George Wright and Thomas Paine were a bit older. Paine was at this point nearing fifty, and Wright was probably of an age, maybe a bit younger, but nearly as old as Henry Morgan, which would put him in that same general bracket. That might explain why Thomas Paine went to Cape Cod to build a windmill, and it might suggest that Wright would have accompanied him or done something similar about which we don't know. As for Jan Willems, well, he was younger. And when I was younger, that sort of Tortuga excess would have absolutely been the goal whenever I came into a stack of cash. And I'm still not yet at the build-a-windmill-on-Cape-Cod stage of life, but, you know, a windmill would be kind of cool. That is to say that if any of the three captains we're talking about here did stay in Tortuga, it was probably Jan Willems. However, by early 1681, the windmill was completed, and all three captains were back in the West Indies. We know this because the record that we have briefly shines a bright light on them, thanks to William Dampier. This was nearing the end of the first Pacific adventure. John Coxon had long ago returned to the Caribbean, but John Cook and Edward Davis, William Dampier, and Lionel Wafer, they all split with Bartholomew Sharp and returned across the Isthmus of Panama at Darien. During that crossing, Lionel Wafer was injured while crossing a dangerous river and forced to stay behind with the local Guna, or Kuna, people with whom the English had an alliance. But when those pirates, the bedraggled and haggard pirates near exhaustion, emerged from the Panamanian jungle to the coast of the Caribbean, they found a ship waiting for them. It was a French pirate vessel under Capitaine Jean Tristain. It was one of the many ships that frequented the coast in this region waiting for the Pacific adventurers to return. And thanks to the Kuna, who kept an open trade and an open eye on the pirates, these Pacific adventurers were reunited, and Captain Tristain ferried the Pacific pirates to their fleet over in the San Blas Islands off the coast of Panama. And that, in the eyes of William Dampier, is where we finally meet up with Thomas Paine and Jan Willems. According to Dampier, the fleet was under Paine's command, and this was a proper Brethren of the Coast pirate fleet. It was a multinational group of men preparing to attack the Spanish in a time of complete peace. 
there are a number of names that we are familiar with at this meeting place. In addition to Wright and Willems, John Coxon was there. He had joined up with this fleet after returning to the Caribbean. And an old friend of ours named Jean Rose was there as well, among many others. And a few days after the Pacific men arrived, Captain George Wright appeared with a prize in tow. He had a Spanish merchantman carrying flour. Probably cornmeal, not wheat flour, but that's exactly what the pirates needed to undertake their raid against the Spanish main. The captains bought that cornmeal from George Wright, who was, after having stolen it, the rightful owner. Some of them did so on credit, which would come into play later. But John Cook and William Dampier, well, why not let Dampier tell it? He writes, quote, We that came overland out of the South Seas, being weary of living among the French, desired Captain Wright to fit up his prize, the Tartan, and make a man of war of her for us, which at first he seemed to decline, because he was settled among the French in Hispaniola, and was very well beloved both by the governor of Petit Guave and all the gentry. We told him we would go ashore there, and build canoes to transport ourselves down to the mosquitoes if he would not entertain us. For privateers are not obliged to any ship, but free to go ashore where they please, or to go in any other ship that will entertain them, only paying for their provision. When Captain Wright saw our resolutions, he agreed with us on condition we should be under his command as one ship's company, to which we unanimously consented. End quote. Dampier is saying that Captain George Wright gave them his ship, his newly captured prize, as long as they agreed to sail under his command, which they did. But what William Dampier was missing here, and what we know thanks to subsequent events, is that Wright was not hesitant to hand over his new ship because he was friends with the French, but because of the delicate political situation with the French. They were ascendant in the world of the Brethren of the Coast, thanks in large part to the actions of the Sieur de Ponquet. He was continuing to hand out letters of mark. The English, on the other hand, were discouraging privateering very strenuously. Any English buccaneer that wanted to sail had to defer to the French in all things. And not just the English, but the Dutch as well. They were in the same situation. According to Dampier, Jan Willems sailed under George Wright in the same situation as they now did, quote, because Captain Yankee had no commission and was afraid the French would take away his bark, end quote. When Captain Wright gave John Cook that ship, he showed preference to the English, which was an action that the French in the fleet noted down. But Wright did so with purpose. Cook and Davis and Dampier were planning to make for the coast, the mainland near the San Blas Islands, and then head up to the Mosquito Coast. But that wasn't a good idea. John Cook and his group didn't know that it was a dangerous stretch of coastline, but Captain Wright did. They would learn, though. William Dampier tells us, quote, The Indians here have no commerce with the Spaniards, but are very barbarous and will not be dealt with. They have destroyed many privateers, as they did not long after this some of Captain Payne's men, 
who, having built a tent ashore to put his goods in, while he careened his ship, and some men lying there with their arms in the night, the Indians crept softly into the tent and cut off the heads of three or four men and made their escape. Nor was this the first time they had served the privateers so. End quote. George Wright saved them from that fate. However, as the fleet departed from the San Blas Islands, preparing to go raid the Spanish, a terrible storm fell on them. The pirate fleet was dispersed. For the following few days, everyone sailed around trying to find anyone they recognized. George Wright, Jan Willems, and John Cook, their three vessels, they had all been close together when the storm hit, so they found each other. They reunited. And together they tried to find the others, but after a few days, a couple of weeks even, of sailing around and finding no one, they chose instead to try to find a safe harbor, somewhere, anywhere that would take them in, where they could rest and resupply. That voyage is the story of betrayal by the French Captain Tristain, who would join them a few days later, in which he attempted to sell the English, under John Cook, out to the governor of Saint-Domingue, Governor de Cusset. Now, I'm not going to go into that story here. We've talked about it at length already. But the political situation that led to that betrayal is relevant. On their way north from the Spanish main, the pirate fleet stopped at every potentially friendly port in both the Windward and Leeward Islands. Every Dutch or French or English harbor, like St. Vincent and St. Lucia, Martinique, Montserrat, Guadeloupe, St. Kitts, they still called it St. Christopher, Anguilla, nowhere would take them in. They had bags and bags full of silver. But despite that, or maybe because of it, no one would accept them. No formerly friendly colony would harbor these pirates. They were learning that the tide had turned against piracy by 1681. The greater political landscape worldwide was no longer one of warfare, but one of peaceful trade, and pirates have no place in that world, except as outlaws and miscreants. That's why, after months of searching, they finally sailed for the only friendly harbor in the West Indies, Petit Guave on Saint-Domingue. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Wheel of urine! 
Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. When they finally elected to make for Petit Guave, George Wright elected not to go. Which is a bit surprising. Remember how Dampier said that he was beloved by the governor and had a home there and was friends with all the gentry? Well, that used to be the case. But it wasn't anymore. Wright, because he had been living through the ascension of the French buccaneers and the political turmoil between England and France... Well, he chose to avoid Saint-Domingue. And he warned Cook and Dampier to avoid it as well. He invited them to come to Port Royal. But they ignored his warnings. That decision nearly led to their arrest and execution. Instead, they enacted a bold and daring escape in the middle of the night. But that's not our story today. Instead, I want to stick with George Wright, Jan Willems, and Thomas Paine. George Wright returned to Port Royal, where we will meet him again in a short while. But for now I want to turn back to Tom Paine. His ship, the St. David, was damaged in the storm that dispersed his fleet. That's why he careened her on the mainland there, and that's when some of his men got their heads chopped off. William Dampier who didn't know that at the time, would learn it about two years later when he returned to the West Indies. Once his ship was seaworthy, John Payne went out searching for the rest of his fleet. And he found a couple of them, including John Coxon, but Jean Rose was still missing. A few days later, though, Jean Rose's ship sailed into view. They set sail to go meet Jean Rose. But shortly after doing so, they saw that he was not alone. As his ship came into view, they saw that he was running, as fast as the wind could carry him, from a fleet of twelve Spanish men-o'-war. The pirates broke ranks and fled in every direction, which is what you do when twelve warships show up on the scene. That forced the Spanish to make a decision, though. They could split up their forces and chase after all of the pirates. And that might mean that they would catch all of the pirates and have... A big old trial which would lead to a hanging for hundreds of buccaneers. But it also means that the pirates might be able to capture one of their warships or more, especially if there were other ships lurking about. Conversely, they could stick together and stay on the one ship that they were already chasing. That would certainly keep their own ships and their own men safe. And it would raise their chances of hanging someone at the end of all of this. So the Spanish stuck together and chased after Jean Rose. As it happened, they never caught him. Jean Rose was a good pirate. They never got to hang anyone, and all of the pirates got away. Everyone laid low for a while. But by early 1682, big events were underway from Tortuga. Michel de Grammont sent out word to Port Royal and Bluefields on the Mosquito Coast to all of the known pirate haunts. He let them know that he was preparing a major raid. He didn't say where that might get out, but he told everyone to assemble at Cow Island, off the coast of Saint-Domingue. Nearly everyone sailed to meet that fleet, 
but not the little clique of George Wright, Jan Willems, and Thomas Paine. Instead, they met off the coast of Jamaica. This major offensive gave them an opportunity to make a final decision about joining the likes of Michel de Gramont and Lauro de Grave. French service was becoming burdensome, even dangerous for all of them, for everyone who wasn't French. Not only was the job itself dangerous, their rewards in doing so were shrinking. They had to give more and more every year to Monsieur de Cousset. Plus, their own governments were growing less indulgent towards buccaneering. So the two Englishmen, both of whom were getting older, Thomas Paine turned 50 that year, they chose to sail for Port Royal and to throw themselves at the mercy of Admiral Henry Morgan, at this point acting governor. If it's true that they did in fact sail with him against Maracaibo and Panama in 1666 and 1671, there's something almost heartwarming about that potential reunion. But Jan Willems was less likely to find a hospitable welcome in Port Royal. His options were poor, but he chose instead to sail off and join up with Michel de Grammont. Maybe it's because he was younger, he still had that fire for action in the belly. Or maybe it's because he was Dutch and he didn't have any easy home waiting for him besides with the buccaneers. Or maybe he and the two Englishmen had some sort of falling out, we don't know. But for whatever reason, this appeared to be the end of their partnership. Upon reaching Grammont's rendezvous, Willems discovered that they were planning a massive blockade of Cuba. This action could have been the crowning achievement of the buccaneers, a raid that would outstrip even Henry Morgan's raid on Panama. It might have showered them in riches and glory for all time. However, the buccaneers by 1682 were fading. The numbers that Michel de Grammont was able to gather was less than hoped for. They went through with the plan, although scaled back a bit, but even that didn't really last. The Spanish broke their blockade, and the Brethren of the Coast, defeated, returned to Petit Guave in disarray. Michel de Grammont was a beaten man. Jan Willems, though, actually played a role in rallying their flagging spirits. He joined the company of Lauro de Graff and Mikhail André Zun and the newly arrived and Yulavu. That story, well, we'll return to Jan Willems. For now, the two Englishmen off the coast of Jamaica. They sent some agents to Port Royal to scout out the landscape, which turned out to be a very good decision. Henry Morgan was under a lot of pressure to act against the buccaneers. It was assumed everywhere from Port Royal to London that he was still at heart a pirate himself. While those agents of Thomas Paine and George Wright were in Port Royal, another English privateer who sailed under French colors arrived at Port Royal. He was probably, very much like Wright and Payne, trying to avoid taking part in the Cuba blockade. However, he was less cautious than the two elder buccaneers. You don't live to be a fifty-year-old pirate by being reckless. Morgan, under that pressure, arrested the buccaneers that sailed into Port Royal. He put them on trial, and the officers were hanged at Fort Charles. The crewmen were offered pardons, but they had to sign up with the militia. This didn't prove to be a warm welcome for anyone. 
George Wright and Thomas Paine, taking the hint, sailed away from Jamaica. But they didn't go to join the blockade. Instead, they sailed off to hunt prizes of their own, off the coast of Venezuela. One of their first captures was a prize of real significance. They captured an eight-gun Spanish man-of-war, which Thomas Paine took as his own. He named her Pearl. He gave St. David over to George Wright. Later on, they would sell George Wright's old ship to another pirate. But then the two crews scavenged the wreck of an old Spanish warship, a warship in which they were both involved in sinking. Coming here to get those guns may have been their goal all along. They rescued eight usable big guns and added four each to Pearl and St. David. That brought the Pearl to twelve guns and eighty men. Now that they were in a stronger position, they spent the next few months capturing Spanish merchantmen, mostly off the coast of Venezuela. Nothing too valuable, no big hauls, these were not their glory days, but they did engage in a brisk trade in stolen beef and sugar. They had enough to live comfortably and to fill their coffers. But once their cruises there were done, it was time to search out a new home. Once again, they traveled all throughout the Lesser Antilles, looking for somewhere that they might stay, but no one would let them in. Pirates were a liability in this day and age. This left the two old friends and partners in a difficult situation. They had decisions to make. Thomas Paine wanted to make another try for Jamaica. George Wright didn't. It was at this point that they chose to split up amicably, to split their loot, and to go their separate ways. That event is our last known record of Captain George Wright. He sailed off into the mists of history, never to be seen again. But Thomas Paine did return to Jamaica in 1683, and he found the landscape of Port Royal very different than he had left it. Henry Morgan was no longer acting governor, Thomas Lynch, who had served as governor for two different terms in the 60s and 70s, was back in. He got the gig by offering King Charles a huge sum of money. It was so much money, in fact, that Sir Thomas Lynch was raised as a knight of the garter and admitted as a gentleman of the bedchamber. Then he was sent back to Jamaica to fix the piracy problem and to make it once again a profitable colony. Under Thomas Lynch's leadership, and due to a royal 1683 decree, Port Royal decided to change tack in regard to pirates and piracy. Charles II and the Parliament had, at long last, outlawed the practice of English mariners selling their services to foreign princes. Any who chose to do so would be considered outlaws and prosecuted as pirates to the full extent of the law. Now, I don't know that Thomas Paine heard about this change in policy before deciding to head back to Jamaica. The record suggests that he probably didn't, that he was surprised about it when he returned to Port Royal, but if that's true, this is amazing timing on his part. Governor Lynch, just a few weeks earlier, had laid out a blanket pardon for any pirates who surrendered in Port Royal. This was the sort of pardon that much like a similar event happening concurrently in New England, didn't look too hard at your coffers. However, you didn't get off scot-free. 
if you got that pardon, you had to agree to work for a time for the governor. But a lot of pirates took him up on the offer. John Coxon, for example, and Thomas Paine. Both men, among others, were given English commissions not to attack the Spanish or the French or to engage in any privateering per se, but to, quote, seize, kill, and destroy pirates, end quote. However, if, while you were out there seizing and killing and destroying pirates on the high seas, if some of their treasure happened to fall into your own pockets, nobody would ask too many questions. John Coxon sailed off to the south and west and had a ton of exciting adventures. But Thomas Paine sailed north. His cruises took him to a burgeoning pirate base in the Bahamas. The island, called New Providence Island, was currently under English control, although they had almost no presence there. However, the only settlement on New Providence had been founded some years earlier, by the Dutch, in fact, and named after their Dutch stadtholder, William the Third Prince of Orange. It was named after William's estates in Nassau. There at Nassau, Payne caught wind of a group of pirates who, well, this was a taste of things to come. A Spanish treasure ship had recently crashed off the coast of Florida, which was brimming with silver. The pirates were gathering in Nassau to scavenge the bones of that treasure ship. Now, this isn't the Spanish treasure ship brimming with silver that lured all the pirates to Nassau on New Providence. That's 40 years in the future yet. But it was a Spanish treasure ship brimming with silver that lured all the pirates to Nassau. And it proved to be too much for this newly minted pirate hunter. Instead of breaking up the pirate's plan, Thomas Paine sailed off to get a taste. He found the wreck of the treasure ship, along with four pirate ships that were anchored off the coast. Those ships belonged to Captains Conway Woolley, John Markham, Jan Cornelizun, and Pierre Breha. But those pirates and all of their men were currently ashore. They were engaged in a siege of the Spanish fort at San Augustine. But it was a really bad siege. Not in that it was a bloody and brutal siege. The Spanish weren't busy eating all of their dogs and babies. No, it was a bad siege in that the pirates didn't know how to conduct a siege very well. They were on the verge of falling apart under the pressure of regular Spanish cavalry sorties. These pirates were not prepared or experienced enough to attack a fort like St. Augustine. But a veteran like Thomas Paine very much was. His men disembarked and marched on St. Augustine. They were well-armed, well-trained, well-fed, and immediately they turned the tide of the battle. The Spanish governor there, after their inevitable defeat, wrote to Havana and explained that they were on the verge of victory when the corsario Tomas de la Pina arrived and ruined everything. Due to his intervention, the pirates won the day. But then comes my favorite bit of this whole story. Tomas de la Pina was a gracious commander. He realized that the other pirates had a better claim to this treasure. 
He merely saw his fellow brethren in need and came in to save the day. So he let them have San Augustine. He left them there to ransack it. It's yours for the taking, boys. Have at it. Meantime, though, Thomas Paine returned to the treasure ship and loaded up on silver. I mean a lot of silver. So much that he had to commandeer Pierre Breha's ship to carry it all. That's the kind of booty on which a man could retire. And with his holds full of Spanish treasure, he sailed north. Just in time, too, the governor of New Providence did manage to cobble together a flota and sent it off to arrest the pirates. And when he got there, he found four pirate captains with three ships between them and a wrecked treasure ship nearly empty of silver. Thomas Paine was nowhere to be found. By that time he was well on his way to Providence, Rhode Island. The governor of the colony at New Hampshire, Edward Cranfield, was visiting Providence, Rhode Island when Thomas Paine arrived. Cranfield was a notorious busybody, and as governor of a territory that had no access to the sea, he frowned upon piracy. He wrote back to London, quote, During my stay at Rhode Island, two pirates came in. Payne was one of them, with a counterfeit commission from Sir Thomas Lynch, styling him one of the gentlemen of the king's bedchamber, whereby I knew it to be forged. Colonel Dongan and I asked the government to arrest them, but they refused. End quote. You'll note that his complaint that the letter of Mark was a forgery was based on flawed information. Thomas Lynch was a gentleman of the king's bedchamber, and that letter of Mark was legitimate. That's why Payne managed to get off the hook. Plus, his holds were full of Spanish silver, much of which he paid for his docking fees and was sent off to be minted into pine tree shillings at Boston's Silver Mint. Thomas Payne's salvage operation was causing a lot of diplomatic trouble, though. The Spanish ambassador in London was sent before King Charles II to lodge many complaints, and they turned out to be quite forceful. So Charles II, King of England, issued a notice on April 13, 1684, from Windsor Castle to the governors of all New England, that specifically called out Thomas Paine. That decree instructed the governors, in regard to what the king called in the most wonderful language, quote, a race of evildoers and enemies of mankind, end quote. It ordered the governors to, quote, permit no succor nor retreat to be given to any pirates, least of all to Thomas Paine, who with five vessels under Breha, a Frenchman, is lately arrived at Florida, end quote. The Rhode Island governor was forced to haul Thomas Paine before a council of notables that included himself, the governor of New York, the governor of New Hampshire, Cranfield, as well as an agent from Boston that served the lords of trade and plantations. Cranfield again levied his accusations of forgery, stating that the letter of Mark was not even in Thomas Lynch's handwriting. The governor of Rhode Island disagreed with his assessment, though. Cranfield claimed that the Rhode Island governor refused to, quote, see with eyes like other men, end quote. And you know, the letter of Mark probably wasn't in Lynch's handwriting. It was probably transcribed by someone else. 
But the agent from Boston upheld the decision of the governor of Rhode Island, which, as we know, was the correct one. However, I doubt it mattered very much whether the letter of Mark was legitimate or not. Boston, thanks to Thomas Lynch, was seeing this flood of silver like never before come out of its silver mint. I will remind you that that silver mint existed in Boston, despite Massachusetts not having one single silver mine. Thomas Paine, once and for all, for now, went free. Apparently all you needed was enough silver to buy your innocence. This decision, though, in the long run, would prove fortuitous for the people of New England. In the war that was to come, Thomas Paine would come out of retirement. He would use all of his skills and his influence in the world of the pirates in the defense of the New Englanders when he sailed alongside none other than Captain William Kidd. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, all of you who have signed up to become patrons on Patreon, everybody who has donated through the website or PayPal, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews wherever it is you listen to the show, maybe given us a like on YouTube, everybody who has recommended this show to your friends and family, all of you make this possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely can do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot After you're done over there, you can find us at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you, be safe, and be well. Tonight